All right, before the Bible passage pops up on the screen, who can tell me what of historical consequence happened on September 1st, 1939? Spit it out. Go ahead. Germany invaded Poland. In the wee hours, and the early hours of that day, the Germans revealed a shocking, horrific new form of warfare known to us as Blitzkrieg, lightning war, a combined arms attack that overwhelms the defenders with tightly organized, timed waves of attack. First fighters came to attain air superiority, followed by dive bombers with their famous screams as they dive to the ground. Then having obliterated much of the hardened positions, heavy artillery bombardment while the armored waves came upon them and the German panzers were the best in the world. Followed by mechanized infantry, all in tight. In American football, we have the most aggressive of defensive plays is known as the Blitz. And I posed the question to the elders yesterday, why in World War II was blitzing an offensive tactic, whereas in football, blitzing is a defensive tactic? And you can, whatever. But the point is, <laughs> if the offense were to be allowed to blitz the way they did in war, it just wouldn't be a fair game. You have to limit the number of receivers downfield. You have to do that. But whether it's war or football, the point in any real conflict is to attack the opponent in such a way that they are destabilized. Time is the most important aspect of conflict. Managing time. Because in time is where we react, respond. And so you take it away. You pressure them. So that way they are off foot, off balance. Therefore unable to successfully withstand. And even if they do withstand, they're not able to coordinate a counter. Highly effective. In our passage that we're going to see today, in just a, a moment, we see the religious leaders essentially blitz Jesus. They come out in wave after wave, in rapid, tight succession. Their aim is to discredit Jesus, to get him to say something that they can either deem treasonous and turn him into the Roman authorities or to make him obnoxious in the sight of the populace. Either way, 
resolve their dilemma. So they try in multiple waves to attack, hammer, and pose what amounts to serious existential questions to trick. What does Jesus do? How does he handle it? Well, let's see. If you would, please, turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew 22. We'll pick up at verse 15. That's, that's the verse we ended at last week, but we're going to repeat it because that's, that's the transition verse. We will read through the end of chapter 22. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection therefore, of the seven whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This 
is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We ask you, O Lord, to be with us, that we would faithfully exposit, but faithfully believe and obey. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. All right, so last week, brothers and sisters, we commenced by saying that Jesus rode into town and to quote... uh, To quote Mel Gibson's Braveheart, he's going to pick a fight. You got to remember, Jesus has to advance the situation so that they kill him, right? He's not going there to be a wallflower. He's going there as the king to execute judgment and justice. And so to provoke them to the point of murder. And so after clearing the temple and coming back into town, the religious leaders are livid. And so they say, who do you think you are? And Jesus goes on the offensive. Tell me about John the Baptist. Was he from man or from God? And that knocked them off balance. They weren't expecting such a thing. I mean, they are the masters of the, of the rhetorical trap. They are the masters of debate. They are the masters of the Talmudic tradition of, of uh, multiple senses and multiple meanings, and they're the ones that are trained to do this to people, and he caught them off guard. And as I was thinking about this, I thought last night about uh, the 1998 animated classic, Prince of Egypt. And, and, and when we get to Exodus, I'm going to come back to it because there's a scene that I think, I think the creators of that film really understand what's going on in regards to the magicians. That the, the devil doesn't have creative powers. No, they're magicians. And so Moses turns his serp staff into a serpent and, and, and how the animators depict it is there's, there's no special lights, there's no special nothing. The, the stick literally just turns into a snake. But then 
The Two Magicians Come, played by, voiced by Steve Martin and Martin Short, and they sing a memorable song, don't they? You're playing with the big boys now. All right. You want to try to trick us, trap us, verbally, rhetorically spar with us, son? Well, you're playing with the big boys now. And so they come at him with these three waves of attack to blitz him and overwhelm him. And there's some reverberations from before, from Matthew chapter 4. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And the devil comes with three waves of attack. And Jesus overcomes the powers of the devil. And here they come at him with three waves of attacks. And just like with the devil's temptations, where the, the thing being suggested by the devil is on the face of it, an isolated random thing, it, it points to an ex existential category of attack. So here we see Jesus overpower and resist the forces of the world. Which is why Jesus will say in John, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus, our great prophet, priest, and king, has disarmed and defeated the best the devil could throw at him and the best the world could as well. Have you ever wondered what these questions they pose, why those? Why not different questions? Why not, why not questions about, about how far they're allowed to walk on the Sabbath? Why the specific questions? Well, they're going to ask about taxes, paying taxes. Okay, that's always a fresh, fun topic, isn't it? It doesn't matter which culture you're a part of. You hate paying taxes. Because as soon as you start talking about taxes, you start thinking about my money that I've worked so hard to earn. And government that I don't like. And it doesn't really matter what government it is. They don't like the government. And what right do they have to take my stuff? So the question of tax paying, by connecting all of those connotations and associations that come up, is, is really about authority and ownership. What right? My stuff. Who says? Authority. You will be like God, says the serpent in Genesis. And since then, the 
the, the artery of autonomy runs and flows broad and deep through our hearts. We hate being told. And so that question centers around the issue of authority and ownership, which is something that plagues and problems people. The second question about the, the resurrection, well, death is a fact of life. And in that day and age, it was everywhere. People lived continually under the existential threat of death. And so questions about the future, stability, safety, security, that is part of our existential core. And then, questions of morality. There's nobody, unless you're a psychopath, there's nobody in any culture that wants to be thought of as a bad person. So what's the standard? Of all the things God hath said, what's, what's the biggie? Morality, existential security in the future, ownership, authority. These are big categorical questions that they're going to come at Jesus with. And so what we see in the first wave, in verses 16 to 22, is that the Pharisees and the Herodians have joined cahoots. And what's interesting about this, and it's kind of humorous, is you may recall from earlier in the book, the Herodians were those Jews who had essentially kissed the ring and aligned themselves with the Herodian regime, which was not Jewish and was imposed on them by Rome. They were traitors and colluders. They were the French people who, who, who got along fine with the Germans. They were the Dutch who got along fine with the Germans. They were the Americans who got along fine with the British. Hated by their countrymen. But yet, because the hated oppressor was there, they couldn't just get rid of them. They were enemies. But yet they come together. What is it about the enemy of my enemy is what? My friend? Well, they come together. And, and with this question, they hope to get Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Is it lawful to pay taxes? And what happens the moment Jesus were to say no? Well, then he's a traitor, a rebel, and an insurrectionist. And Rome will take care of that. But the reason why it was a live option that Jesus might say no is because then more so than now, people were more than willing, as, we, as we're going to see in a few decades from here, they were more than willing to die sticking it to the man. So it was a live possibility that, that he might say no. But if he just says yes, well then, the Pharisees, 
who we have seen going back to, to John's ministry where, where they too come out to get baptized. And, you know, John says, who told you to flee, you brood of vipers? They're fakers. And because they're fakers, they will turn to the crowd. See, Jesus doesn't care. He supports Rome. He doesn't have your best interests or the interests of the Israel of God at heart. They aim to catch him on the horns of a dilemma. So the two reasons the taxes were hated in that particular historical moment were, one, the general hatred that we all have for paying taxes. And this was the annual poll tax. It was one denarius for every adult male. Unlike in the American taxation model where we tax income or whatever, this was a tax on existence. If you lived, you had to pay it. It was one denarius per adult male per year. One denarius is one day's wage. How would you feel if your government was taxing you one day's wage per year for every adult male? We... I'm not here to talk about taxation policy, but, but, but we, we are so far more tolerant of being taxed than, than previous generations of people. Let me just tell you that. But the, the, the thing for them was the coin that you had to use was a denarius coin. The coin used for the tax. It wasn't that you could get, you know, a hundred pennies to make a dollar. No, you had to pay with a dollar. You had to pay with a denarius. And the denarius was highly offensive. Because on, on the one side, it showed a, a picture, a, a portrait of the Caesar in profile. Then Tiberius. Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the flip side of the denarius, it showed the Caesar sitting on a throne with a spear in one hand and an olive branch in the other with the inscription, Pontifex Maximus, which translates roughly to chief priest. You see, the denarius was essentially a propaganda piece for the imperial cult. As such, it was an idol that fit in your pocket. And to use it meant you had to look at and essentially conduct business with an idol, which was highly, highly noxious. So it's with no degree of irony, or it's with no small degree of irony then, that Jesus in verse 19 doesn't have one. But who does? The very people questioning him. There's a little irony in that, that they were willing to carry the idol, but Jesus was not. Now, Jesus, in his response, is, is astonishing, isn't it? He doesn't say, no, don't pay the tax. He doesn't say, yes, pay the tax. 
He doesn't get to the sur- he doesn't he doesn't limit himself to the surface yes or no question they ask him. He gets to the heart of the issue of ownership. And he asks a question back at them whose inscription is on it. Caesar's. And then almost with a dismissive backhand, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But give to God the things that are God's. And that blows them away. Because in terms of possession, it's his money. If he wants it back, But if we're talking about possession and ownership and rights and claims and you're making a big deal out of this, but where's God's image? What belongs to God? Us. You, Pharisee. You, Herodian. Give to God yourselves. Your money? Well, it has Caesar's image. It's his money, whatever. You concern yourself with giving to God your life because you are his. Jesus here demonstrates that God and his claims over us are the totality of our existence. Not merely the outward conformity to formal worship patterns on the Sabbath day. The heart, the mind, the will, the affections, the totality of life. Jesus does not unpack here a grand political philosophy. That's for later generations. But implicit, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God, the things that are God's, he, he does implicitly acknowledge the limitations of what belongs rightfully to the government. And we'll see that played out in, in Acts. Just a few months later, Peter and John are going to be before the Sanhedrin and they're commanded not to do something. And Peter and John reply, we need to obey God rather than men. There's a limit. But understand here, the issue is about claims of ownership, authority, And God claims you. Don't get sidetracked worrying about your stuff because it's not really your stuff. Focus on you and the claim God has on your life, Jesus says. And so they are astonished because he sidestepped their whole question and pointed the finger back at them. Then the Sadducees come, wave two. And in verses 23, we see Matthew front ends by reminding us that they don't even believe in the resurrection. So why are they asking a question about the resurrection? Well, they're going to engage in a tactic that we do all the time. And that is, when we think someone has a ridiculous position... We will show that we think it's a ludicrous, idiotic position by presenting an extreme example. And the absurdity, to underscore the absurdity of it. And they ask a question about 
the resurrection. And how these brothers have all shared this wife from the, from the Leveret marriage law of Deuteronomy 25. And if they were asking a sincere question, they could have just simply said, hey, you know, one guy was married, he died, his brother married her, you know, when they get to the resurrection, whose wife will they be? Because it's the same question. But they want to underscore this whole resurrection thing is nonsense. And, and, and placing your hope and faith in a resurrection and in the future is just silly. Because the Pharisee, the, the, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spiritual wars. They didn't believe in angels, demons, miracles. They were practically not hardened atheists in the modern term, but I think you could say they were closer to deists, that there's a God who made things, but, but he's uninvolved, really, and they were materialistic, that this world and this life is really all there is. But yet, because of Rome, they were the ones who controlled the temple and the worship that went on there. And so Jesus, in their question, does not get down into the nitty-gritties of, you know, who did, who did she like more? Who did she, you know, who, who, with, with whom was she the longest? Or None of that matters because it's all wrong. The question is wrong. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you will know that the passages that discuss resurrection are not in the Torah. The passages that explicitly mention the resurrection are in the wisdom literature and the prophets. But conveniently, those were the sections of scripture that the Sadducees rejected wholesale. So Jesus does something brilliant here. He takes them to Exodus chapter 3, the Torah, where God is revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush. And when God introduces himself, he says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of the present tense, I am presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It implies the continued livingness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which is why Jesus says God is the God of the living and not the dead. And by the way, your whole question is wrong. You don't understand the power of God. Because in the resurrection, reality will be changed. And this is a hard pill for some to swallow because they think and operate out of a mindset that they were operating in back there that formed the basis of the question. An assumption that there's this life and there's next life, and there's a whole lot of continuity. The relationships we have now will, will, will basically resume then. And that life will go on like now, but then, but just in a better way. 
And the fact of the matter is, is Jesus is saying here, look at your husband, look at your wife. You're not going to be married in the resurrection. You will know and remember each other. But your relationships with your parents, your grandparents, your brothers, your sisters, your children, your grandchildren, all these relationships will be transformed. So that the question, a woman had two husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, is unfounded. There won't be husbands and wives in the resurrection. We will be like angels. And so, Jesus silences them because they understand neither the Bible's teaching about God's power to raise the dead and God's power to transform the future. And then the third wave comes. And this time they're going to ask a question to try to embroil Jesus in theological controversy. We know from history that the religious rabbis and scholars of the day, they were continually arguing about weighty and lighter commandments, which ones were and weren't as binding and under what circumstances were commands binding and under what circumstances they weren't. They were doing this all, it was their livelihood. So this lawyer comes at Jesus. Jesus, which of the commandments is the greatest? And remember, they're talking about 613 commandments. Take your pick, Jesus. Which one is the greatest? Settle it for us, Jesus. Which one of the 10 commandments is the greatest? And, and, and most, most rabbis had, had rightly understood that the 10 commandments were, were the summation of the rest of the law. So most discussions about the greatest commandment centered around one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus doesn't bat an eye, does he? But he also doesn't, he also doesn't go to the Ten Commandments like they might have expected. Instead, where does he go? Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. The Shema, the great creed of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he offers up a freebie. Because they don't ask him what the second great commandment is, do they? He's coming, he, he's, he, he's going for the fences here. And the second one is like it. And then he flips over to Leviticus 19.18. All the way from Deuteronomy to Leviticus. And the second one is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what's awesome about Mark and, and Luke's account of this is they record that, that one of the scribes is bona fide impressed. Well said. And that Jesus is himself impressed by this guy's response and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But here's the problem, guys. There's a big question mark over that enthusiastic scribe's 
It's possible to be near the kingdom without ever entering. Do not be content to be near or close to the kingdom. Enter it. And Jesus, in his summation of the law, to love the Lord your God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, love is the summary of the law, and that's why the prophets repeatedly make remarks to the effect of that the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice, because obedience is there, because, I'm sorry, sacrifice is there because obedience isn't. So if we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will with our own volition want to keep the law on both counts. And they're stunned. They don't know how to respond to this. Their blitz has failed. One of the risks in football of blitzing is that by sending the defense forward, you leave potentially receivers open in the downfield, don't you? So if the blitz fails and the quarterback is able to survive the pressure, the real potential exists for a big play. And their blitz of Jesus has failed. And here again, I really like what Mark includes in his episode here. Right here at verse 41. They're, 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 they've been silenced in verse 40 while the Pharisees were gathered together. So they're, they're silenced. And, and Mark actually includes the word in his account, Jesus answered. And the reason I like that is there's no question. So what does it mean he answered? No, no. His, his statement is his answer to their silence. In other words, he's on the offensive now. And he pushes back. So tell me. And this is such an awesome one. This is great. Tell me. Because I'm not done with you yet. To quote another movie, I've got you for three minutes. Three minutes of playtime. And so he says, tell me, whose son is the Christ? And it's their turn to not bat an eye. David! And then Jesus turns to Psalm 110, which is the most cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110.1, the most referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Okay, so tell me by your own confession, by your own admission and from the study of multitudinous passages of the Bible, you know that the Messiah is the son of David. So riddle me this. If it's David's son, why is David calling him Lord? And they have no answer. They hadn't really thought about that before because what is self-evident, and more people need to understand, what is self-evident in the nature of Jesus' question is it's fathers are superior to sons. 
So if someone is someone's son, it's, it's just, it's inherent in the concept of being a son, that you are subordinate. So how is the Messiah David's son if he is being called Lord? And to their human mind, they could not. It was cognitive dissonance, brothers and sisters. It caused them to spin out. You see, they didn't have the vantage point we have. The Messiah has come. And the reason he could call him Lord and yet be his son is it is true. According to the flesh, Jesus is descended from David. He's his descendant. But Jesus is the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Of the human nature, he is the descendant and son of David. But he's divine. Therefore, he is in every way superior to David and is his Lord. This, this question that Jesus poses to them, it underscores their myopic, nationalistic understanding of what the Messiah would be. They thought of the Messiah as being a great liberator, as someone who would come and, you know, just be a real chip off the old block, that all the enemies of Israel would just get, get, get whacked and it would be wonderful. It'll be so wonderful to watch those pagans die. Oh. And they forgot. Or they just refused to consider that, that God was after something so much bigger. What's, I, I hope you'll underline or reference Isaiah 49.6. And it's awesome because God in that passage says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, not quoting, saving Israel, Pfft, that's easy. It is too small of a thing for me to save just Israel. No, I'm gonna bring in the nations. And, and, and that idea of salvation coming not just for my tribe, but being open to the world was, was just, it was lost on them. And that right before their eyes, they were literally meeting their maker. And because they had little consideration for the power of God and they had done so little Bible synthesis outside of what served their, their, their nationalistic and positional uh, rule, they had such little vision for what God was doing in the world. They didn't see that God was calling for ownership of their whole life. They didn't see that what God was after was the grand trust in him for their future that could be radically better and different than anything they could fathom. And that what God was calling for was a wholehearted devotion to him. And to consider our neighbor as ourselves. This big hearted look. So Jesus withstands their blitz. Encounters. 
by pointing to himself. Son of David, son of God, Messiah here to save us. Brothers and sisters, the conflict has ended. Jesus has triumphed over the powers of the world. And all that's left is for him to render judgment, which he does next week. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for teaching us about ourselves, what you expect, and how we can relate in the world. Help us to trust in you, O Lord, to turn to you, to seek to identify and remove the interpretive lenses that we apply that limit what your word is saying. And grant that we would seek you in spirit and in truth. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.